healthy forests will help us mitigate climate change more so than nearly any other environmental reality. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in today. My guest this week is Lee Greenwood. Lee is the Forest Health Program Director for North America at the Nature Conservancy. And what does she work on? It's not exactly what you might think. One of Lee's major focus areas is invasive species. And in this conversation, we begin to scratch the surface on the complexity of invasives. And we talk about why things like wood pallets and firewood present such big challenges for forest health. Lee did her undergraduate studies at Williams College in Massachusetts and her master's here at the University of Montana. She is a great example of the fascinating career paths and important work that our graduates are doing. Lee is also a great friend, and we had a ton of fun in this conversation. I'm excited to bring it to you right now. All right, so we're here today with Lee Greenwood. Lee, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. Technically, this is take three at getting into this interview, but we'll try to do it with a little bit more elegance. You were kind of one of the first people I met here in Missoula when we moved here in 2012, a neighbor knocking on our door saying, first, do you have bear spray? And I was like, well, what's bear spray? <laughs> and the next question was, do you move your firewood? If so, that's really bad. Right. Yeah, that's exactly how I introduced myself to everybody. Yeah, that was kind of your calling card. You even had hats that said, don't move firewood. I did. I still have a few, for sure. So we'll get to that. You are the director of the Forest Health Program, which is a national program for the Nature Conservancy here in Missoula. Um, Tell us about that role. Yeah. What's that job? What does that mean? What's Forest Health Program Director mean? Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a big, all-encompassing uh, job. So uh, the Nature Conservancy has local programs like the Western Montana chapter of the Nature Conservancy, but then they also have global and regional programs. And I'm part of the North America region, and I work on forest health, which in this situation means insects and diseases that are invasive to the region that they're causing trouble in, and um that are affecting forests and trees. So that could be trees in cities, it could be trees in an orchard, or it could be just wildland forest. Sure. Okay. And uh, we'll get to kind of, I mean, you said invasive species in there. That's a big part of your work. We'll get to that. Before we do, though, I'd like to kind of just set up some bio stuff. I mean, grew up back east, went to Williams College, and then worked in the field as a field biologist for for many years. Yes. Um, Tell us about that experience. I mean, you did some cool stuff. Thanks. Um, Well, you know, when I got out of my undergrad, I had a biology degree, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to make sure that I did a bunch of different things in order to kind of suss out what I wanted to go to graduate school in and what I wanted to pursue as a career. So I actually worked uh, in Puerto Rico researching red-tailed hawks. Uh, I worked in New Mexico looking at migratory birds uh, and then ended up uh, in the course of different um, other positions and so forth working in Missoula for the Lolo National Forest looking for goshawk okay. um, habitat and breeding adults. And there famously used to be um, goshawks up in Patty Canyon that sometimes would buzz people during the breeding season and scare the heck out of them. Yeah, remind me, goshawks are pretty scary. They Uh, hold a grudge. They do. If you're near their nest when they're feeling vulnerable, um, which is when they have um, young chicks. Sure, makes sense. Then they'll kind of come after you, and they could hurt you if they hit you, but normally it's not like they're out to get you. Have I told you my owl story? Well, a lot of people have an owl or a hawk story because these birds don't want you near their trees, and so it's, you know... They don't actually want to hurt you. They want to drive you away from their their chicks. This one wanted to steal my hat. They go for the highest point on you (laughs) most of the time, which is your hat or your helmet or or your forehead or whatever. And sometimes they do hurt people, but it's just far more common that they startle the heck out of you. So back to your undergrad in biology. Because you mentioned right away, like, what I should do to get ready for grad school. Was that... that on the radar screen immediately after graduating? Because I'm just thinking, you know, I I teach in a business school and it's a lot of the students, you know, we have a variety of career paths, but it's pretty well laid out. You get an undergrad in business and you go, you know, you do accounting, you do consulting, whatever. As a biology undergrad, what's the landscape look like for you coming out? 
There's just a huge number of options. And the one thing that I remember pretty distinctly was that I didn't want to um, go too far down one path without having kind of made sure it was the right path. And so while I did have some friends and peers that went, you know, straight to grad school or straight straight to med school, I didn't feel like that was a great choice for me. I wasn't really sure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a big commitment. And so the more I learned about field biology and conservation, the more I realized that the, the path that made the most sense was to take a bunch of jobs in a bunch of places, seasonal positions even. So sometimes there were three, four months, which was the design of it. So it wasn't awkward or anything. Um, and just see what I liked. And I learned some really funny things. Like I thought I wanted to work in tropical forests. Okay. And then I That's li- the, the, the Puerto Rico gig? Puerto Rico. And I also, yep. And I also did some volunteering in Costa Rica. Okay. And then I discovered pretty quickly I was not that excited about tropical forests. I actually really treasure the four seasons that I grew up in. And so yeah, the, you don't impress me as a tropical gal. Right. Well, I thought I was going to be one, <laughs> right? And then I it, and then I was wrong. And I was so glad to have figured that out before I had, you know, dove in into a full graduate degree at like the University of Puerto Rico or something, mm-hmm. you know. For sure. Um, and so those sorts of learning experiences lasted, you know, I don't four or five years before I finally sort of was felt like I was really ready to hit the ground running and pick a graduate degree that was going to. Um, suit me for what I wanted to do. So you landed in this region, Lolo National Forest, doing a series of stints uh, researching raptors. Tell us about that experience. I mean, what's field work like? What's a day in the life? Or there's probably no such thing as an average day in the life. It probably varies greatly. Yeah, field work does vary greatly, but it gives you a lot of skills at working both independently and in a team, making sure that you're good at um, self-care in terms of just basic safety, like we were talking yeah. about that bear spray. I'm still hoping you're carrying bear spray around, Justin. I don't have it on me right now. <laughs> um, That's good. You don't want it indoors, really. There is a picture of two bear in the studio, and there are – this is going to be a really bad joke. There are a number of grizzlies on this campus. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did I just do that? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so We wish there were more. Right. The, the the thing is that, you you know, when you are tromping around in the woods um, day to day, you have to get really good at a lot of things really quickly. And, yeah. You know, um, safe driving, safe around bear habitat, um, heat, hydration, you name it. So that there's those skills. And then you develop all these other skills of, um, you know, scientific inquiry and, and note taking and following directions, even when you're frustrated with them. Because otherwise, in science, if you don't do it the way that the big picture demands, and you go off in your own direction, you can mess up the whole thing. And that was a really important um, thing for me to learn, especially as somebody who had grown up in kind of a, um, a little bit of a rule breaking environment, and sure. to be like, you can't mess up the structure because everybody's depending on the whole team to do it the same in order to create solid data. Yeah, the manuscript doesn't really work if we have one researcher doing their own right. thing. Right. Imagine if one person always did 60 minutes when it said 60 minutes and somebody else estimated. That's not how it works. Like yeah. you have to really do it the way they ask you to do it, which sometimes comes a little rough. You yeah, know? tell us about tell us an example. Like what was the kind of time where you were like, God damn it, this you know, this 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 method is not what we really can can make work in this situation putting you on the spot a little bit yeah well there's a great example because i was laughing about it recently um i worked on a study near boise idaho on the um, prairie falcon it's the largest breeding area of large raptors like that in the world it's awesome it's called the snake river birds of prey national conservation area and they uh the study required that you really like This is going to sound a little crazy, but you stare at the caves that the birds um, nest in. And I don't remember how long it was for. It might have been 30 minutes Um, for 30 minutes. And like the only thing you were allowed to do was blink because the whole point is if they're in there for over 30 minutes and they've got to be sitting on eggs. And if Uh. they're in there for under 30 minutes, maybe they were just like checking out the cave and making sure it was the right size for them or something. And I just thought, like, I have other things to do besides blink for 30 minutes. This seems insane. But then once I actually had, you know, talked to the program, the designer of the protocol and I understood, like, no, there's a real reason that it's literally exactly anything but, like, breathing and blinking or you're done. Yeah. 
it made sense. And I was like, oh, I get it now. This is a, this is, we've tested that this is how long you can be sure they must be on eggs. Mm-hmm. So learning the value of rigorous methods. Yeah. And that sort of led into uh, joining the, the master's yep. in wildlife biology program here at the University of Montana. Yep. That's exactly right. And um, the master's program here was super rigorous and fascinating, you know, Um, They have a big international component, Mm -hmm. which I thought was incredibly valuable to see other people's experiences in other countries and um, laws and and cultures was great to have folks like that in the classroom. Um, And then just, you know, having the different um, disciplines, you know, I took some environmental studies graduate level classes that, you know, applied to my master's degree as well as traditional wildlife biology classes, which I thought was um, a great opportunity to make sure I had the education I wanted for my degree. And where you, you know, now your work is largely focused on policy. So at some point you made the decision to move from field work to policy work. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah. Um, as I finished, as I moved towards finishing up my graduate work, I realized that there was one mistake that I had made in this whole grand scheme of planning. And, you know, you make a lot of mistakes. Just one? You make a lot of mistakes in your 20s, and some of them you can, you know, recover from. And this one was one that I could recover from, which is that I realized that I was not looking forward to a whole life of field work, Mm. that it it didn't provide for me the type of work-life balance that I was aiming at. I think the concept of work-life balance is kind of flawed, but, you know, you, you overshoot and you undershoot, and you kind of go for the general direction. And I was realizing that that a traditional field and research career wasn't actually going to be the best fit for mm-hmm. me. And so then I started to think about policy. And um, when this opportunity to work in forest health came up, it was a good combination of scientific knowledge, policy, and kind of backing away from this research and field work situation that I had realized wasn't the best fit for me. Yeah. And as things go, though, I mean... You joined the Nature Conservancy in what, 2007? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, good memory. Well, uh, LinkedIn, you know. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's accurate if you say it's accurate. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, but I guess what I'm getting at is. I mean, the Nature Conservancy, that's a choice gig, an elite institution. So, I mean, you make the switch to policy work, you're in a top flight graduate program, and you come in working with some of the people doing the best work in policy and and field work in the world. It was so, a huge opportunity yeah. uh, and, and one that I was incredibly lucky. Um, and, you know, my mom likes to remind me that luck favors the prepared. And so that's one of the reasons I always say, like, graduate work was huge, making sure um, that I was positioned well, had a lot of different types of work under my belt. Mm-hmm. Super important. But um, it was an amazing s- stroke of luck in a career to be able to get a position like the one that I got for off the bat. And it's changed in time. Um, I started out as, you know, it was uh, 11, 12-ish years ago now. And I started out as a, obviously much more of a junior employee. And mm-hmm. now I've raised up in the rank a little. And so back to, you know, our chance first meeting where you tell me not to move my firewood and... <laughs> and, and um, and I had no idea why. Like, why, why, why would I? One, why is moving firewood a bad thing? Why should I care about that? Well, it gets back to what you, what we talked about for a second earlier, uh, which is invasive species move around uh, in weird and unpredictable ways, almost always with human help. And here mm-hmm. in Western Montana. Um, you know, one of the big topics of conversation is zebra mussels, and those zebra mussels yeah. aren't like. Yeah swimming across the continent all on their own, uh, they move on boats and gear that goes in the water. And in the case of firewood, we've got all these different types of forest pests and pathogens, bugs, funguses, who even knows, lots of stuff. And because firewood is made literally out of trees that were either alive or dead when you cut them down, but they're sure dead once you cut them, um, they're Firewood can be filled with various invasive species or even just native species that you have no business moving around the continent either. What is an invasive species? All right. I made sure to memorize the federal definition and take notes. Um, So an invasive species is a uh, non-native species that threatens economic, environmental, or human health 
harms. So significant damage to one of those three things. So you can think about um, something that causes economic damage would be, for instance, the muscles, the uh, invasive zebra mussels uh, can clog up irrigation districts and just wreck the economics of farming on dry land, right? Economic harm. And not to mention the tourism as well. I mean, Huge economic just, harm to yeah, tourism. absolutely. Totally changes the environment in, um, in a standing body of water like a lake uh, where it gets all pointy and, and unpleasant on the sides. Uh, and then environmental harm, pretty clear stuff there. You know, all sorts of animals and um, plants that can cause huge nuisances and then also kill off the native stuff that belongs in the area. And then human health is kind of a little bit harder to understand because you don't normally think about diseases as organisms. But like Zika virus mm -hmm. is an invasive species of humans. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, because yeah. I believe it comes originally from the uh, Africa I think. Um, and I know that West Nile virus comes from northern Africa, and that has a really significant effect on things like birds and horses in Montana, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an invasive species as well. Uh, and West Nile virus can be um, quite dangerous for humans. What is the human health harm of, um, of the mussels? Well, you don't have to have all three. Oh. Yeah, you don't have to be able to shout bingo when you're done. Okay. You can just have one. <laughs> you could just have one. Yeah, you could just have really. No, I mean, not, not to diminish it. I mean, yeah, one yeah. is one is bad. It's enough. Yeah, like uh, Zika again. Just to return to an easy example on the mind, I think it probably only has one. Probably only human health. Yeah, yeah, probably. But then there's although some... economic, yeah, a lot of these variables are related as well, and we don't need to yeah. get totally down that rabbit hole. But back to firewood. I mean, <laughs> so I, I hadn't even thought about it. I yeah. mean, it happens all the time when you're car camping, right? You'll well, or cutting down a Christmas tree, for example. And what's the rule? 50 miles. So the the way to kind of remember it is, is 50 miles are not out of the state. In our part of the country, uh. that kind of makes sense. So Montana's really, really big. And yeah. sometimes there's giant stretches between where there are trees and where there aren't trees. And so then sometimes the 50-mile idea doesn't really make good sense. Um, but generally speaking, you should not be moving firewood in the western states between states. And if you can achieve within 50 miles, that's for the best. And so, and I got all kinds of questions as to how you kind of make people care about this and sure. make them aware of it. But before we get into that, I mean, talk about some, I mean, we talked about the muscles, but let's talk more about, I've heard you talk about the systems involved here yeah. and how complicated they are and how our understanding of them is not complete. Sure. Um, so maybe an example of, 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 a, of a species where, you know, it just, it just got out of hand before we really even had a grasp of, of understanding it. Oh, gosh, that's a big one. So um, the one of the biggest threats in firewood is a, a small green beetle called the emerald ash borer. Okay. And it first entered North America on one of the uh, near the Great Lakes. And at first, it was uh, pretty much unknown to science. And so they didn't know how fast it reproduced or like what part of the tree it, it liked to live in. Mm -hmm. And so when they first tried to kind of control it, they're like, okay, let's go with some um, sort of tried and true methods of cutting down the trees in a radius around the last found location of emerald ash borer, which was devastating. Because when you talk to people yeah. about like cutting down all their trees. Like that's horrifying. Um, but it was... Because of some beetle. Because yeah. of some little beetle that nobody could even see in right. terms of like day-to-day -day life. It's visible to the naked eye. But, you know, like you don't notice them. And so they cut down all these trees in this giant ring to try to contain it, which was a really good idea because they had no scientific knowledge around it. But then it turned out that the beetle lives in trees for like three or more years before anybody really can find it. And so it actually had far exceeded oh gosh, yeah. the ring. And so then they were stuck, the, they being mostly members of the federal government and the program that was trying to eradicate it in early history of the beetle, which was in the 90s, um, stuck basically admitting that unfortunately what they had thought had been the best way to get rid of it had been largely ineffective, which was really disappointing to everybody and also um, just demoralizing yeah, but yeah. Then, and then it turns out that the emerald ash borer is one of the best examples of pests that can move on firewood. Um, and so it 
then you think about like, oh my gosh, it would have been so easy for firewood to be transported the two to three miles outside of this ring that they were trying to build. And so to understand the science and the human nature and the human behavior, the science of how far the bug could fly ended up being completely inconsequential in comparison to how far people take firewood to go camping. So it's like you were saying, the system was far more complex than initially understood. Yeah, and unfortunately that complexity leads to, you know, people just casting aspersions and dismissing the whole endeavor as a hoax or, you know, a waste of time, a waste of money or junk science or whatever. Right, and we see that all the time. You know, when we have the best information we've got and we have to make a decision, doing nothing is an active decision, Mm -hmm. then sometimes that decision will be wrong and that is going to happen. And I think that's one of the things that I deal with a lot in my work is, you know, we've got to take action or decide actively not to take action because no decision is an unacceptable way of tackling a problem at all. In some instances, like with rainbow trout, for example, I mean, that's what we use to stock right. lakes right. for long periods of time. That's that's an invasive species, is it not? In Parts of the North America and parts of the world where rainbow trout historically had no presence in the waterways. Right. Yes. So when you look at um, places like uh, New Zealand where they're, um, stock, they had historically stocked North American fish, those become invasive species. They eat the little New Zealand native aquatic insects and possibly the New Zealand native fish. Um, and so even though... At the time when they initially stocked, for instance, those fish way out there across the ocean, they thought it was like they being fishermen. Um, culturally, at the time, people didn't really understand the impacts it would have on the waterways. Um, and you can't undo the vast majority of these situations. It's incredibly difficult to remove or eradicate an invasive species typically and in the instances where it's not that difficult to get rid of invasive species we do get rid of them and then they fade out of our historical memory because we did it a new angle is underwritten by first security bank and blackfoot communications two cool companies doing awesome things all over montana this is cameron lawrence mis professor in the college of business And you're listening to A New Angle. So in the case of rainbow trout, we did this on purpose and and still do in some ways. Sometimes, Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the case of this, remind me the name of this borer beetle thing. Emerald ash borer. Emerald ash borer. That thing shows up in the Great Lakes region. I mean... Is it swimming across the lake from Canada? What's what's the story? How does it just show up in the middle of the country? Right. It seems kind of crazy, but um, the emerald ash borer and a whole bunch of other pests are thought to be primarily brought between countries on what's called solid wood packaging. And when we talk about solid wood packaging, we're talking about pallets, crates, those giant spool things that you wrap cables on, and this stuff called dunnage, which is like big blocks of wood that keeps things like from like cars from rolling around when they're in a container sure. ship. So those are the the three, the four things that are solid there, packaging. There's a lot of that stuff out there. Oh my gosh! I mean, when you imagine the millions of containers that are coming into the United States per port, there's a crazy amount of solid wood packaging moving across international borders every day. And there's all sorts of you know, uh, whatever bugs and seeds and stuff along for the ride, presumably. Right. And a lot of it is completely benign. Um, A lot of things out there will never become invasive. They don't have the biological characteristics or they are so delicate that they die en route or um, they are outcompeted or only the males show up and so they can't reproduce or something like that. But in a lot of cases, invasive species can catch a ride on things like solid wood packaging. Thankfully, there is a wide variety of international treaty and law in order to make sure those materials are clean and um, treated in a way to minimize the risk of that. But but when you minimize the risk of an event that happens by the millions every yeah. day, 
right. you have a really tough mathematical equation there on risk. Yeah, and then minimizing risk gets couched in terms of, you know, politics Absolutely. and economics, which is probably the primary driver. Yeah, and there's a huge component of capability too. We're talking about many different levels of economic development across the world. Right, right. And some countries are going to be advantaged in terms of being able to adhere to the restrictions and treaties, um, you know, higher level uh, development than other countries that'll have a really hard time adhering to them. And then there's unfortunately an incentive to maybe not do the best job so that you can still have an active um, export industry. So, you know, you first worked at, well, you've worked on a bunch of different things. The firewood thing seems fairly straightforward, challenging, but informing somebody, hey, don't move your firewood. Yeah. And and getting them to be aware of that yep. and, and presumably changing their behavior. Not that that's easy, but it's right. a fairly simple endeavor or there's, there's a simplicity to it when you move to like wood pallets and yeah. trying to kind of how do you even get your head around like a right. worldwide economic political social yeah. challenge logistical too yeah with the firewood it is kind of a contained universe okay i like the uh, yeah that's a better way of saying simple yeah it's sure. not it's not simple by any means no. it's it actually gets pretty crazy pretty fast even though you would think that firewood would be straightforward but you know with firewood if you think about it you've got okay um commercial producers and individual people just moving firewood. And so, okay, you have two worlds. You've got people's behavior and then you have commercial regulations. Right. Okay, that's a pretty contained universe. Like, I can do that. I can look at regulations. I can look at um, trying to change behaviors. It's it's not that big of a deal. Um, I mean, it's consumed the last 10 years of my life. But, you know, like, it, it makes sense. When it's a hard problem, but it has there, – there's yeah. a box you put it in. Yep. And we have lots of people working on the problem, whether it's state or federal agencies, nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy and my work. It, it makes sense. When you look at the solid wood packaging problem, you realize the scope of that problem is tremendously bigger. And it's also um, – it's international, which just adds a lot of flair to oh, the gosh. issue, yeah. right? Flair. Well <laughs> um, so you know, when you start looking at okay, well, who holds the regulations on the movement of um, solid wood packaging? You're looking now at essentially a body of the UN, and like that's really different than working with the Montana Department of Agriculture. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, and um, when you talk about. Uh, you know, facilitating or non-facilitating of global trade. Now you're not just talking about, for instance, um, regional distributions to uh, uh, truck stops at Firewood. Now we're talking about the entire economies of countries, mm -hmm. right? So you, you, it's just blown blown so much bigger and um, it's really fascinating. And it's something that I've only started to really dig into Um in really earnest for the last year or so. And so part of it is still kind of getting, making sure that I truly understand the lay of the, the land. Cause we're talking about the whole world now. Here. Oh, the lay, I can't even imagine the layers. I mean, and how did that look like professionally? Were that a great job on the firewood thing? Now you're going to step up to a, a, a multi-dimensional problem that we don't even understand? Well, the, the problem of solid wood packaging has been one that I have been aware of through some of my work on forest health in general for a long time. But in 2017, and we're going to get into like a little deep policy here, but it'll make yeah, sense. I like it. Okay. In 2017, there was sort of a long fought victory by some colleagues of mine, as well as some of the work that the Nature Conservancy had done. And what it was, was that when you had a producer of solid wood packaging who had violated the rule and gotten caught, it used to be they wouldn't get a penalty of any sort until they had done it five times in one calendar year. Gosh. I know, right? And when you talk about, like, the chance of them getting caught, because yeah. obviously we do not inspect every pallet that comes into North America. Mm -hmm. So the chance of them being caught was pretty low, unfortunately. And the chance of them being caught five times in a year is pretty pretty insane. Yeah, so there's essentially no enforcement. Very limited strategic enforcement, sure. I think, is how we would prefer that be phrased. Okay. Um, but in, two, in late 2017, that changed to one violation equals one penalty. And that created 
uh, a big sort of ripple in the system. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, there's been a lot more attention to why are these violations happening? How can we get rid of them? And when you have a violation that's really significant, Customs and Border Protection, which is the U.S. agency that deals with these sorts of things, can actually send an entire container ship back into international waters on a contaminated pallet. Turn and, around, get out of here, hang out. Right. And we're talking about like millions of dollars of losses a day when you turn around a container ship. Yeah. And so it shook up the system a bit and it, it allowed my work to actually see some of the sort of weak spots. So it was like, it was... It was kind of a, a catalytic moment sure. in the system. And so the some incentives all of a sudden changed. flipped. Things Absolutely. changed. And the folks within the um, pallet, the um, pallet industry um, association that I work with, uh, you know, they got a lot of frustrated feedback from their international partners that this had really changed the system. And so now my partnerships with them are proving a little more fruitful because they have new motivations. I don't want to say that they were ever doing anything wrong on purpose. I don't think that's the case. Sure. But the system's all changed. In that change, now we have some opportunities to kind of like uh, go into those new opportunities and change the problems that were there, but they were below the surface because they were so few and far between that those five violations a year were actually caught and documented properly now that it's one violation. Because if you think about it in the, in the stupidest possible way, if you have five violations and somebody had to have kept track properly of the first four, mm -hmm. but with one, it's in front of you, you're done. Yeah. And like when you're looking at international trade and ports and, um, you know, potentially non, uh, not the greatest communication between different entities and stuff like I could see how five would get, maybe not all of them would be recorded properly, but oh, yeah. just one, you're done. And so let's talk about like the mechanics of, and I'm just trying to get my head around, like, okay, where is a pallet built? Yeah. How does it get put into use? How sure. long is a useful life? And then what happens to it once it's done? Yeah, pallets are... I mean, I know it ends up in Frenchtown <laughs> by the side of the highway, but uh, what's the journey between, you know, conception to Frenchtown? So... um it's so fascinating and crazy to think about these things because a pallet is really uh, a handicraft in a lot of countries that don't have a lot of automation of labor. Okay. And so anybody with nails and a hammer and the Hand ability. Made. Yeah. And wow. it, well, okay. In North America and many other um, economies, they are not handmade. Okay. They're robot or partially hand um, automated. Um, but you could make a perfectly good pallet by hand as long as you could mill wood. And so any tree that has any kind of structural integrity whatsoever could be used to make a pallet, which is where the problem comes in. Okay. Because um, the, the global changes that happened in like the 1950s actually led to where we are today in pallets because there was these big revolutions in agriculture, um, especially in Asia. And people, to, to grossly simplify the system, people started planting all of these trees as windbreaks, especially in China, in order to help protect the fields. Okay. And those trees matured. But when you plant a windbreak, and it's all the same tree, you're creating a monoculture. So mm -hmm. you're creating like a habitat that's perfect for an opportunistic insect because the monoculture means that there's no variation in the trees. They're all equally susceptible. And so we ended up with these strips of equally uh, susceptible trees throughout China, and then they all died in short periods of time because of pests. And then that wood wasn't worth doing anything with except for making pallets. Sure. And then in that insect-infested wood were the insects, and then they made them into pallets, and it was before and there was an international treaty on the treatment of pallets, and then mm -hmm. we shipped those bugs into everywhere. North America. Yeah. Well, we shipped them everywhere, but because U.S. has a very um, international economy, we shipped a heck of a lot of them into the U.S. and Canada. And so any tree... Right. So you ask like where pallets from start to finish. Right. So any tree, um, it could be an industrialized system or it could be like literally a handicraft pallet. Sure. Those, all of those exist. It's a big spectrum. 
Um, and then for them to be shipped across international borders, they have to be they have to be treated in some way, and the vast majority of them are treated via heat treatment, which is okay. you put them in a kiln for a certain um, temperature and a certain duration at the core of the wood. So basically, you bake the heck out of it until the bugs are all dead, um, and that uh, treatment is held by a treaty that's held by a very arcane subset of the UN. So that's an extra step. In the production. And so yes. the, these, these, you know, there's pallets that don't go through that step. Is that, is that kind of? Uh, there, well, certainly if you were only planning to use it. they don't put them in for quite as long. That's or, the problem. Yeah, okay. So if, if you are just planning to use your pallets domestically, you don't have to heat treat them. Sure. They do fine. And that's actually, generally speaking, fine. Um, but if you want to ship them out of the country, then they need to be heat treated and they need to be stamped. And this is where things get interesting, okay. in my opinion. It's been interesting the whole time. <laughs> Don't undersell yourself. <laughs> well, the stamping is actually my new favorite subject, which I can't believe I just said that these these stamps on pallets in other countries is the most interesting part. But it is because it gets really weird from there. Okay. Because this, there's no way to inspect the pallet microscopically to determine that the treatment was appropriately applied. So we, we live on a universe of the trust of the stamp. Okay. And a certification, essentially. It is a certification system. Absolutely. It's called ISPM 15. So if I drop that by mistake without actually describing it, the, 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 the stamp and the certification is called ISPM 15. Okay. And ISPM 15 has a bunch of ways that it can be, um, unfortunately, falsified or undertreated because there's no way to know through looking at the wood under a microscope or anything. Uh, and so if you have a bad actor in another country, they could potentially falsify a stamp, even though the stamp is supposed to have a unique code to the facility in which the heat treatment occurred. Okay. But you could totally falsify a yeah, stamp. You make a counterfeit stamp. Sure. And then you could start just churning out non-heat treated pallets fraudulently and sending them across the con across mm. the world. Yeah. And then those fraudulent pallets could be just filled with these insects from trees anywhere else. And they don't always show up in the US, of course, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the pests and pathogens that we struggle with in North American forests that are invasive are also problems in parts of Europe and parts of Africa. And then our pests can show up somewhere else. So, like, can you imagine how bad it would be if the mountain pine beetles started decimating some random forest in Russia? That'd be terrible. Yeah, and it would probably be hard to get people here to care much about that. Right, because they'd be like, whatever, mountain pine beetle. But the trick with invasive species is that they don't tend to act like native species. If right. they did, they wouldn't be a big deal. They sure. wouldn't cause our demonstrable harm, right? They wouldn't reach our threshold of invasiveness. So when you move these potentially fraudulently stamped pallets, you're basically just rolling the dice on what might be in there. And it's illegal. And that's the sort of problem that I'm trying to tackle. And how do you even tackle it? Like, who's on your Rolodex? What, are, what, are you, like, uh, what, what groups are you trying to bring to the table to sort this thing out? So it's a lot of groups that nobody's ever heard of, which is fine, yeah. you know? Um, so for instance, the U.S. Forest Service has a particularly tiny department in it that does awesome work, primarily stuff that you would associate with the Peace Corps called the International Programs Group. Okay. And they're great. And they do all sorts of things to protect global forests. And so I'm working with them. We've got a grant pending with them. And they're trying to um, work with me to figure out the fake stamp problem. Um, and then uh, the, is that a group that's, you know, pretty stably funded or, is, or do they live by the whims of political? International programs seems to me to have really good staying power. Okay. Um, they are a small core group within the Forest Service, and it's not part of like the national forest system that we kind of know and love. It's a different wing. Okay. Yep. Uh, then... As I move forward, I'm going to also need to figure out how to engage with this little core group within the UN that does the International Phytosanitary Convention, which is to say... Phytosanitary, okay. I was going to yeah, go yeah. with it, right? So phyto is plant and sanitary is clean. Got it. And so it's the International Clean Plants Convention. 
Um, and so working with those folks in order to see how we can um, modernize the stamp verification. Because remember, I said earlier that the stamps should have a number that say the exact facility in which they were processed and certified. But the problem is that there's no international database of the stamp numbers where you can search it um, from anywhere. And so when you find a palette and you're like, God, that stamp looks like it's kind of weird, like maybe it's homegrown and fraudulent. The way that Customs and Border Protection in the USA now verifies that that stamp is bunk is they actually have to call or email the host country. Oh, gosh. Right? Like, this is already crazy, right? Yeah. Like, they're literally calling some poor guy with, like, I don't even know, the China Department of Agriculture. So we got a tanker here, or a container ship, (gasps) and we got one pallet that's holding the whole damn thing up. Literally. And I got to make a phone call to ask about one pallet stamp in the midst of, I don't even know how many pallets are on an average container ship. Thousands. Yeah. So that's the process. It's crazy. And you got all the people that want to get this thing moving right. through the system saying, come on, man, make and the so phone now, call, get the answer. Imagine the civil servant, right? Like yeah. he's just one little inspector guy and he's doing his one random inspection of the day and he's like, that pallet doesn't look great. The incentive for him to be like, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, instead it of create a nightmare on the port is huge. And it shouldn't be like that. He should be, in my humble opinion, as the Forest Health Director of the Nature sure. Conservancy, thank you very much. I think they should be able to take a picture with their smartphone and run it through a recognition program. It should be and like an RFID code at the at the store. I think it could be even easier because these codes are not that complicated. They're two letters for the country and then a bunch of numbers, and they have to be exactly a certain way. There's only a certain um, shape they're allowed to be in. And so it's it's not even tricky. You know, like, it should be like, okay, this one's from, you know, facility 417 in China. We're good. Go. There's you an know. app for that, essentially. We should more or less have an app for that. Yeah. And that's how I plan to spend the next year of my life. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to go to this conference on phytosanitation something. Sort of. Uh, Healthy so, plant conference. Yeah, good. Uh, so the convention is actually not like a literal convention. It's like a, um, that's like an international treaty term. There's no actual convention. Oh, got it. It's not. <laughs> I'm not actually going to a thing. Yeah, I got it. Okay. So anyway, there's there's a group of people and that is called a convention in this lingo. Yes. And um, Thank they... you for the vocabulary <laughs> lesson. <laughs> and I'm going to be working with those people. It's like the Geneva Convention. It happens Thank every you. year. Exactly. It's, it's a real hoot. Exactly. We get together, talk about torture. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, the International Phytosanitary Convention gets together and talks about ways to prevent plants from getting sick across the globe, right? Sure. And so they're the ones who put in place the um, treatment that I talked about, the ISPM 15, and it's a great treatment, but we are now in 2019 and we need to digitize and open source a lot of the um, tracking and accountability. There's no third-party verification. Each fox guards its own hen house. Okay. Um, so each country verifies its own certifications. I find that deeply troublesome. Yeah, absolutely. Because not all countries have a governing body that can be depended on equally. Yeah, and they probably have they probably vary in how much they care. Absolutely. About all the implications of all this. Yes, absolutely. They vary in how much they care. They vary in how much pressure they are receiving mm-hmm. from their trading partners and bodies and, sure. and their economic ministries and things like that. There's a lot of variation in there. And that, that concerns me. Right now, we're going to stick to stamps because that is a lower hanging fruit. Seems like a good place to start. Right. And then if it turns out that once we put in place much better stamp tracking and verification process that there are certain countries that it looks like their governing body isn't doing a strong job of self-governing, then that would lead to sort of the next conceptual project is how do we fix that? And as I'm thinking about this, how does, I mean, pull the lens back on the nature conservancy and the mission of the organization. How does it decide to insert itself into these sorts of challenges and then, you know, but for the Nature Conservancy, it seems like 
this would be a totally dysfunctional process. So it plays a critical role, but it can't insert itself in every sort of international disaster problem. <laughs> I don't know quite how you describe it. Sure. So every organization has to undergo prioritizing. Yeah, exactly. And right now, the Nature Conservancy is wrapping up a multi-year prioritization process. It's been pretty difficult and fascinating. And one of the priorities can be basically summed up as healthy forests will help us mitigate climate change um, more so than nearly any other environmental reality. Hmm. So if we can have healthy forests, we can absorb carbon, we can store carbon, we can um, keep people healthier because trees have amazing ecosystem services. And within that concept and body, the movement of invasive species represents a tremendous stressor on the system. Sure. You know, how are we going to keep global forests healthy if we're randomly moving bugs in between them? That's terrible. And it's pretty straightforward when you think about it. Like you said, when you pull that lens back, you're like, oh, yeah, if we want to keep forests healthy worldwide, we can't continue to not minimize risk in certain ways on the global scale of moving invasive insects. Now, we've again, the treaties are good, but we've got to continuously make them better because trade rises every year. Mm -hmm. We're on like a red queen treadmill with all this stuff, right? So every time you think you're catching up, the treadmill speeds up and you're moving more products across the globe. And so you've got to keep getting smarter and working better. And when we've got these, you know, amazing technologies of machine learning and things like that coming online, it would be foolish to not sit down and say, how can I work smarter on this problem globally? Well, and it, it's a great example of, of being mission-focused. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to solve a problem, and there, there are probably more attention-getting or sexier problems yeah. to dig your teeth into. And, I, you, you could know. say that. When I tell people that I work on firewood and pallets, it's not really an... It's not a good conversation starter sometimes. Well, I think this has been a great conversation, Lee. <laughs> well, thanks, Justin. Uh, yeah. But sometimes, you know, it's kind of hard to describe if you're in just like the real short format. You know, oh, what do you do? Yeah, your elevator pitch is tough. Why should I care about that? Right. You know, and, and you can go with the real surficial level. I want to see healthy forests everywhere. And so I work on, you know, preventing additional threats to healthy forests. And that's a pretty boring way of phrasing it. But at the same time, that is the core of the work. Mm-hmm. It's something that people can buy into. Right. And then if you're interested in the threat of global climate change and you mentioned like, well, you know, the best way to mitigate global ch climate change is global forests. And I work to improve global forests. That's pretty clear, too. So, you know, good job on the firewood. Thanks. And I guess we'll be checking back with you in, I don't know, six months, a year when you figured out the pallet problem. Oh, yeah. That's all it's going to take for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm hoping to see progress in a year, but we do have a two-year commitment to the project. So, okay. you know, we'll see see how it goes. And firewood's an interesting one, too, because we're probably going to be seeing some significant changes in the next year as well. Can you give us a little hint what that means? Yeah, so the pest that we were talking about earlier, the emerald ash borer, there's currently a, um, this is getting pretty policy focused, but there's currently a proposal out by the U.S. government to remove the restrictions on the movement of potentially contaminated firewood with emerald, um, contaminated with emerald ash borer firewood. That's bad, right? Letting this, some of this stuff move around more? I believe that's bad. Yeah, yeah. But I also believe there are economic and practical realities at play. And um, so the Nature Conservancy's statement is that we think this is counterproductive to North American forest health. But I would not deny the reality that there are significant logistical and financial challenges with the current program. And so I do get it. It's I know why they're proposing to remove the regulation. It's It's a really tough world out there. Yeah. But if that happens, then what will happen next down the road is that it's likely nearly all 50 U.S. states will put in place all of their own firewood regulations, creating a very unpredictable patchwork mm. of interstate firewood regulations. And that's going to get even more complicated than it already is. Yeah, that, that sort of contained universe problem all of a sudden uh, gets blown out of the water a little bit. Right. And right now we have something like 15 states that have their own individual state boundary regulations on firewood. But once we go to whatever it might be, say, 
45. Not every state will do it. Um, it's going to be a lot more complicated. And I think it's going to be some kind of like I said with the pallets, you know, that when the system got shook up by that change from five violations to one violation, there were some interesting opportunities and weaknesses that we found. With the change in the Emerald Ashbore regulation and firewood, we might find some new interesting ways to tackle the problem. It totally remains to be seen. Well, we'll have to just uh, wait and see. That's right. Lee, Lee, I got to say, like, every time I have a conversation with you, I feel a little bit smarter. I care about some new things I didn't care about before. Nice. And my brain hurts a little (laughs) bit. So, uh, yeah, job well done. Thanks for coming on the pod. Well, thanks. This uh, drum coffee really helped this uh, move along. Yeah, we got through it pretty quick. Thanks for coming. We'll uh, check in for an update uh, down the road. And um, happy trails. Thank you, Justin. Okay, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lee as much as I did. All right, next week we have our first mother-daughter duo on the pod, Carol and Whitney Williams. Carol is a legend in Montana politics, having served in both the state House of Representatives and the state Senate. Her daughter, Whitney, was a key staffer to Hillary Clinton during the Bill Clinton administration and now runs Williams Works, an organization dedicated to helping the world's most influential philanthropists, corporations, and social innovators take on some of our most pressing problems. This will be the fifth edition in the Sea Change series, and I'm excited to bring it to you next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. And before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aiden Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.